HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. The more you know about our meat, the better. That's the bottom line at Whole Foods Market. Our standards require no added hormones and no antibiotics, ever. Our partnerships with farmers and ranchers allow us to offer the highest quality local and organic choices. And our newest program, the Global Animal Partnership's five-step animal welfare rating, sets unprecedented standards in the industry for beef, pork, and chicken. Standards you can see, labeled, when you walk into our stores. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com for more information on the five-step rating. Because, hey, the more you know, the better. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network. And today we are going to be talking about the African-American diaspora and the foodways of Africa to America, the culinary journey of Africa to America, with my special guest today, Jessica Harris, whose new book is called High on the Hog, A Culinary Journey from Africa to America. Jessica is the author of 11 cookbooks documenting the foods and foodways of the African diaspora, notably the Africa Cookbook, Iron Pots and Wooden Spoons, Africa's Gifts to the New World Cooking, and The Welcome Table. And in these books, she presents African-American recipes of all sorts, from slave cooking, which is the source of many of the classic southern dishes, to family favorites that she grew up with. Jessica is a tenured professor of English at Queens College and consults at Dillard University in New Orleans, where she founded the Institute for the Study of Culinary Cultures. A culinary historian, Dr. Harris, has written and lectured widely on African-American foodways and culture. She's been honored numerous times for spreading the word of African and Caribbean cuisines around the world and received the Heritage Award from the Black Culinarians and was recently inducted into the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America. So as I said, today she's with us to talk about her newest book, which has been published by Bloomsbury Press, called High on the Hog. Welcome, Jessica. Well, hi. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, What the first thing I would like to, to ask you is, all right. Tell our listeners what you mean and where you got the high on the hog. High on the hog. The expression is actually um, 
Southern and more than likely African American. And uh, the tale that's actually in the front of the book is an old Mass and John tale. Uh, certainly, trickster tales are not unique to Africa, but in this case, it's a trickster tale that comes out of the plantation experience. And so it's a story about an interaction between Massa and John. And basically, Massa comes down to the slave cabin when, at hog killing time and asks John to go down to the back 40 with him, help him kill the hogs. And he says, and I'll give you, you know, usual payment, the ears, the tail, the head, the feet, and a bucket of guts. That would be the chitlins and the hog moss. Um, and John says, yes, Massa. And he goes down and he kills the hog and he gets the ears, the tail, the head, the feet, and the bucket of guts. And this goes on for years. And then finally, John gets his own hog. And then he gets another one. And so the subsequent year, Master goes down to the slave cabins and says, John, I... It's hog killing time. I want you to come down to the back 40, help me kill the hog, and I'll give you usual payment, the ears, the tail, the head, the feet, and a bucket of guts. And John sort of rears up and says, "Mm, I don't rightly think so, Master. I've got my own hogs now. I'm eating bacon and middling (laughs) and backbone and pork chops and ham. I'm eating higher on the hog. I'm eating high on the hog now. <laughs> so the idea is not the feet, but the ham. Yeah. Higher on the hog. There you go. Well, and that sort of is, it's a, um, a nice metaphor for the whole transition of well, what eventually did occur. For what happened with the food of African Americans and for basically all people's culinary desires to eat Higher on, on the hog. The hog. Yeah. And, well, and to own, own their own land. Well, and Raise their own animals. And do their own thing. Right? And then if we get into that, we can talk about... And Oh, I'm going to make a big old segue now. Okay. A lot of people talk about <laughs> African-American food as being unhealthy because of the hog. But one of the things that's interesting is to note in that Massa and John story that John owned those hogs... He probably slopped them, fed them himself, knew what went into them, may have even called them Massa and Miss Ann. <laughs> um, but the bottom line is he, he knew what, what those hogs had consumed. And therefore, that was a very different kind of hog meat from the hog meat that he might have otherwise been given or from the hog meat that we might have today. So, or, or I was going to say, come full circle to where we are today with some of these, you know... Well, with the heritage breeds today, then we've got a whole other kind of thing. We're, yeah. we're getting back to the old way. Right, exactly. And well, I, I just, I really didn't know where to start with you with this book because and with your knowledge i mean you really are the doyen of yeah. of african-american food ways that just means i'm true. old thanks <laughs> no we're the same age my dear i checked okay. that one well, we're both old. and i'm we're not, not gonna old. say i'm not gonna say let's that let's not go <laughs> there right and we have with us though how a very young person which we but is is equally knowledgeable nicole taylor welcome nicole thank you nicole I'm... is a host of a show here on the network too for most of you who, who if you don't know she does hot grease which airs weekly on Mondays. And we're happy to have Nicole with us. Thank you for letting me sit in, Jessica. Ms. Harris is definitely one of the people that I admire.
Meyer. She's on the list of of greats in terms of uh, black food ways in the oh. United States. Yeah. Well, well goodness. Terrific. There you go. It's I'm your own little fan club here. You see? Oh no. <laughs> well, you you know, in trying to to figure out the food ways, I don't know how. You spent a lot of time in Senegal because you did your dissertation on Senegal, Senegalese theater or dance. Right. right. No, no, no. My, my dissertation's on the French-speaking theater of Senegal, and I went to Senegal, as I like to say, BR, before roots, mm. which really changed Senegal almost as profoundly as it changed the United States. But it certainly made a connection. So to have gone prior to that connection means I saw another kind of Senegal, a kind of not absolutely post-independence, but an earlier Senegal than the 1977 or 78 Senegal that most folks saw. And part of that was noticing that as I ate around the country, and I went with my mother, who was omnivorous in the (laughs) utmost, who ate everything, including a lot of stuff that I didn't eat. I sort of slide it over to her, (laughs) and she'd eat it, uh, sort of like Mikey. Uh, But the thing was that um, I noticed tastes that were just like tastes I had experienced at home or in my grandmother's houses. Combinations that seemed to work, things that went together, things that that somehow or other um, made me think of home. And yet the dishes were not necessarily dishes I'd grown up with. I certainly hadn't grown up with anything like chebujen and nothing like chicken yasa, but they they used familiar ingredients in, in fascinating ways. So that um, those connections and then the the subsequent ability to discuss them with my mother and then try to put them together and then other years and years and years of traveling not only to Western Africa but throughout the African diaspora. I was travel editor of Essence sort of at Mm -hmm. the same time and so I'd be in Guadeloupe one week and maybe three weeks, month, two months later be in the Côte d'Ivoire and then maybe jump somewhere else to Bahia. And that kind of culinary connection, that sort of gustatory connection, is what made me start to think about so much. Well, these are the areas that I really, I, I felt, well, maybe we can somehow get a grasp on a on a beginning and an end. Or sometimes I like to go from the end and go back to the beginning. <laughs> and that is, you just mentioned, um, Sen- Senegal, the Ivory Coast, and and maybe more of the, the Sudan um, because you talked about the three crucibles that sort of identified the different areas where um, the Africans came to from and when they came to America. Um, right. Well, one of the things that was interesting about my research was I just, I kept reading and reading and reading, and I guess that's how I became a culinary historian because when I wrote my first book, rather than go to recipe, I went to archive. Mm-hmm. And so I think that may be a big, uh, the great divide. Um, or recipe in archive. But in terms of looking at the history and the botanical development of the African continent, in a way, it was interesting to see that they had come, or certainly many of the Africans who were enslaved and brought to the New World, and particularly to the United States, came from three different culinary crucibles, one based on grains, the grains being essentially millet, mm-hmm and to a lesser degree, sorghum. Sorghum, right. Um, and occasionally, if you extend it and sort of go around it a little bit, you get another crucible, which is rice, and then you get a yam crucible. So you've got grains, 
an extension of the grain, which then becomes the coastal rice. And years ago, I was astonished to discover that Africa had its own rice, Oritza Glaberima, which is a rice that is native to the continent. Hmm. And so that has its crucible. And then further down the coast, you get yams. Mm-hmm. And when I say yams, I do not mean sweet potatoes. You mean yams, right. Tough to, and, and, and tough to tell people that in the market, that what they're, well, what know, they're getting, they're, but we, we won't go there, right? Um, and it's interesting because if you, you think of a lot of the flavors and foods today, um, well, then, of course, as you, we were talking before the show, corn kind of came in and, and re, when well, after the New World. Corn extended the millet crucible right. and, and actually worked all up and down the coast. So you think of a lot of those flavors the, and then the, the greens that were, we're talking, you know, like 500 B.C. I mean, they started to cultivate these greens and, and some of these grains. I mean, these are foods that have these been. These are deeply embedded. From the earliest human settlements. And this is the food that we we still taste today in what is often called southern cooking, but it's actually of the African-American well, food. Well, if right? you think about it, you know, now, now again, another thing that sort of surprised me enormously as I was researching was the sort of Tara da 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 view mm-hmm. of the South and of the whole notion of enslavement is awfully skewed and probably not that right. Uh, that there were so many variations and so many different degrees of enslavement. But one of the things that certainly happened during that period was that in many cases, whether they were on small land holdings, the average number of slaves on a plantation, if I'm not mistaken, was something like 10. Hmm. So that's not the enormous holdings with hundreds that we think of mentally. Right. Um, but wherever the enslaved were, they were more than likely to be in charge of the agriculture and of the cooking. So that they, as I like to say, they grew it, they tended it, they harvested it, they processed it, they cooked and it. And they cooked it. Yeah. They served it. And then if you want to get basic about it, and yeah, they emptied the chamber pots. Mm, so they yeah, had the yeah. full gamut of the, the culinary mm-hmm. experience, if you will. So, and they were recognized and appreciated for their talents absolutely. of cooking. I mean, that's, this, this, this changed, well, in the largest um, or the longest lasting of the slaveholders. I mean, it changed, it changed cooking well, and it, the cuisine of, of it, the South. Uh, you know, my, my favorite um, sort of quotation, if you will, is from Eugene Genovese, who wrote a book called Roll, Jordan, Roll, in which he speaks of the culinary despotism of the slave <laughs> cabin over the big house. And that's really true. Um, Asian cooks, particularly Chinese cooks, talk about the wok hand, mm-hmm. that you always sense the hand of the cook, no matter what the recipe is. If you've ever given your recipe to someone else, it's never, never quite yours. It becomes theirs, even if they follow it to the letter. And so that walk hand, that invisible, unspoken presence of the African in the kitchen and in subsequent decades and centuries, the African and descendants of those Africans, left that touch, left that taste, left that ephemeral taste of Africa Hmm. in the pots of the South. You know, it's interesting. I was speaking to Molly O'Neill on the show last week, and 
she did her new book, One, One Big, Big Table. Table. It, walking, you know, not walking, but you know, almost, traveling. Almost, knowing America. Molly, almost. <laughs> almost. Traveling all across America. I asked her, I said, in your travels of trying to seek out what is American cooking or American cuisine, was there one region that really struck you as having the most identifiable food? And she, without hesitation, she said, the South. Absolutely. The South. The South has, and and we think of, I know that you have a dislike for this word soul food. Um, Well, I don't dislike it, but I I feel that one of the things that happens with using that term exclusively is that it in some ways diminishes the scope of the food of I think you're And I think you're absolutely right. I think it becomes, the food becomes misunderstood. And... um, and but instead, the the food of the South and understanding, as you said, who planted it, where it came from, like rice. I mean, the whole cultivation of oh rice. Oh my lord! I don't mean, even start with that. You're talking whole, South Carolina, you got and it. when you talk about Carolina rice, uh, which is still, you know, Carolina gold is once again becoming the sumum of rice. Right. Um, but that is entirely, virtually, entirely grown according to African, West African. Um, agricultural methods. Right. They knew. They knew how to grow that, and they were needed. I mean, they well, were, they know, were they... not only needed; they were sought. That's right. After, and and that's the other thing that I learned about enslavement is we don't really give slaveholders per se, and certainly not slave traders. Um, you know, this is a dastardly profession. This is not something anybody wants to admit to being involved with, and certainly not something that anybody wants to give credit. But they were aware of African civilizations. They probably knew more about them than we do. And so they did all sorts of things. They went specifically, they knew there were people over there who knew how to grow rice. And they went and got them to grow rice. Hmm. Hence the, uh, the posters that talk about, you know, Negroes freshly arrived from the windward coast. They knew that this was where the rice grew. The rice grew. All right. I mean, and that, as you said, the Western African influences on world cooking. I mean, just think of of what we would have been otherwise. I mean, we just, you know, without without those influences, it didn't have to happen that way. But without no, the no, influences I mean, of the African of the African foodways. Well, if you want to think of the United, actually, not even the United States. Think of the hemisphere without Africa. Yeah. And start taking away what you'd have to take away in music, in dance in vocabulary, in gesture, in dress. It's a whole other show. It's pretty, that's a whole yeah, other show. Pretty a whole other five shows, right? Yeah, that, that's a miniseries, yeah. at least. Yeah. But the food is, you know, you, I think you or someone likened it to the jazz movement. In exactly. That, you know, it's, the, the it's way like that it's jazz. put together. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, we think of, well, actually, I mean, you talk about rice and the cultivation of rice. Actually, just in planting and farming in general, a lot of the even the Europeans who were supposedly you know good farmers and knew you know the land realized that a lot of these slaves who came from Africa had much more efficient ways of planting, as you pointed out. Oh, absolutely, and and became really the master gardeners. Well, precisely right? because they were the ones who had in many cases done the gardening, or who knew about the gardening, or who had lived in some cases closer to the land. If you begin to think about who many of the Europeans, and when I'm talking about the Europeans, I'm not talking about the ones who came as indentured servants, and mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the ones who came out of Ireland and, and Germany and, and later in the process. But when you start to talk about those who fled those religious persecutions, certainly the, the 13 colonies and the people who 
began to found, you know, Plymouth Colony and, and uh, not Roanoke Colony, but um, Williamsburg and, mm-hmm. and the Virginia colonies. They had some claim to aristocratic pretensions. Mm-hmm. They didn't work the land. No. They, um, they didn't know a whole lot about working the land. And so one of the things that, would, that happened quite clearly is they depended on others to show them. Now, Native Americans showed them about all about corn. All about, <laughs> for well, sure. all about the three sisters, corn, squash, That's and right. beans. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, the interesting thing was also then to look at the parallels in, in the agricultural techniques. Europeans scattered seed. Mm-hmm. The Africans and the Native Americans very deliberately planted seeds. And uh, one of the things that uh, that's written about in the early texts from Virginia is how those deliberately planted seeds left or gave yielded yeah so, so much, much more. more. Yeah, I was impressed by that by the the numbers of bushels more more. Oh, by, I mean, more than twice as planned, much in some planting, cases right. by planned planting. And look how we plant today, well, exactly. you know, in rows because we know we can we, get yields more. Yeah know what we're doing well we have a lot more to talk about we're going to take a little break and when we come back we'll talk more about the african foodways and you know he keeps some good vegetables following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Hot Grease every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Hot Grease strives to bring sustainability, localized sourcing, and other forward-thinking schools of culinary thought to the minds and kitchens of everyday folk. Each week, Nicole Taylor's conversations cover the entire spectrum of food enthusiasts, from internationally renowned culinary masters to moms on a budget looking to impress their tiniest critics. Again, that's every Monday at 3.30 p.m., Hot Grease on the Heritage Radio Network. Oh, I'm going to talk about soup. Hey, we are back. It's Linda Palaccio. I'm talking with Jessica Harris about the journey of the culinary journey from Africa to America. And Jessica, I, I was impressed by some of the sources that you found for your research because one of the hardest things that culinary historians face is studying the foods of the common people or the lower class people. We have tons of resources to go to for the the royalty and the upper class, but when it comes to the food of the common man or or the or even lower, we 
we don't really have any written resources so much, but you found amazing sources. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that, that to me is is fascinating is the, the need to learn how to read between the lines. Hmm. Um, I've forgotten. I, I, I credit Shoyanka. I'm not sure if it's Shoyanka who said it, but if it isn't, somebody else did, and Shoyanka will just have to get the credit today. <laughs> Uh, you know, history is always written by the winners. That's right. Which means in order to really kind of balance the thought process or balance the record, one must learn how to read between the lines. And uh, several years back, I did a paper at uh, Radcliffe Seminar that was on food and gender, where I talked about just that. And uh, the paper was entitled Studying the Silences. Sometimes you can learn as much by what isn't said as by what is said. Very important. Very important. Interesting. Well, you had, I mean, you, obviously there were some notes or writings or ramblings from missionaries and, and traders or Everybody travelers. Everybody writes about food. You know, the, what is it? The they army travels eat. on its stomach? Yeah, that's right. Every traveler travels on his stomach. You, you, you like it, you don't like it. Um, I'm speaking on, well, I don't know about dates in the show, but I'm right. I'm speaking on March 6th uh, at the uh, YMHA downtown in Tribeca, uh-huh. and it's a program about Louis Armstrong and food. Oh, terrific. And one of the things about it is even he, who we think of as a jazz person, as he traveled, he annotated menus. Hmm. Who'd have thought it? But I mean, so you have very specific things that come to mind and that people explain are, you know, we feel passionately about food. People who keep travel journals. I think travelers in particular, and you mentioned Louis Arson, people who are on the road, you know, musicians. I know my brother's a musician. He talks about it all the time because food, they're not at home. Do do? They can't cook. They have to go and find food, food that satisfies them, food that's, that's good. Precisely. Yeah. And, I mean, that's, and, and that's one of the reasons that Ray Charles endowed this phenomenal Ray Charles chair. That was very interesting to read, and that was at Dillard University. Right, and it is. He was very specific. It's not in music. It's the Ray Charles chair in African-American material culture with a specialty in food, in food. and folklore. That must have been fun. Oh, well, it Going was, down to New Orleans it, to well, spend time there. I have there a house it. in New Orleans. It's no better place to write about food. Uh, well, w- three of the things that we associate with, um, I guess, the African-American foodways are okra, watermelons, and black-eyed peas or cow peas, any kind of, you know, the mm-hmm. legumes, right? Right. And if you think of those three things as as having a big influence, of course, there were others, too. Those, again, are tastes that have been around for a long time and have influenced lots of different well, other it's ethnic cultures. it's one of those cultures. surprise things. But, I mean, I think one of the things that, that even speaks to the continuing connections between African Americans and the continent is just how much and how pervasive those things that are indigenous to the African continent are not only in the diet, of African Americans, but in the mental records, if you will. I mean, no more virulent art, large quotation marks around hmm. the art, has ever been created than some of that, those images of African Americans and watermelon. That's right. Yeah. Jo- and, and, and jokes. I mean, no, at, jokes. They're at their expense. All of it. And, all of it. Uh, but who knew that that is actually a fruit that is native to the continent. Exactly. But the thing, you know, and I always like to find a little twist in there. 
The thing is that watermelons are important because not only are they a wonderful source of liquid in places where there may be no water or the water may be polluted, they are portable, Mm -hmm. they are thirst-quenching, they do all sorts of things. So they were beneficial, and particularly to the enslaved, because they allowed them the comfort of something they might not otherwise have. So a joke at their expense, but who got to laugh last? Yeah, the last laugh that. is always the important <laughs> that's thing. Right, that's right. Uh, in there, in, in the study of of cookbooks and and the written word, once again, for the longest time, well, obviously it was a, a lack of education. The slaves were not allowed; they were illiterate. And well, after deliberately so yeah, kept, you bet, and it kept them without any education, so they couldn't read or write. And there was that brings us to another other cultures have this um i guess not it's an issue or this um practice of recipes and food are usually passed down from mother to daughter well, I mean, or father to daughter or son not written down well i mean i think the thing is you know um it's just the reality is that african americans were and still are an oral people mm-hmm. i mean rap and hip hop come out of that same kind of oral genesis. Uh, It's the way that we transmit news, ideas, uh, recipe. It's that transmission, usually from the mouth of the elder to the ear of the younger, sometimes even skipping a generation. So people will learn things not so much from their immediate parents, but from perhaps their grandparents. But um, that's been, for the most part, the way that recipe has been maintained. Mm Mm-hmm. That's and fairly good, fairly well, if you right. think about it. I mean, right. if you think about the authenticity, large quotation marks, of recipe per se. Um, so that most African American families up until very recently have not had that little book of recipes, mama's favorites, you know, mama's right. favorites right. or that those index cards or right. something. Now, Asian culture is very similar in in that regard. Um, right. That, that if they break that chain of you know of well, if you lose down, it, it's gone. Right. But you did you did in your research, and thanks to Jan Longone of of um, University of Michigan. Yeah, um, I just saw in January. Oh, ah, yeah. great! That we always thought that what Mrs. Fisher knew about old Southern cooking was the first right. written tome of, of and recipes. Then uh-huh. Jan found another one. Right. And that's the Melinda. Melinda Russell, right? And and uh, what was it? Uh, domestic a domestic cookbook yeah quite very simple, simple title yeah. but i mean a very complicated woman who had an extraordinarily painful life um but um but who also wrote a cookbook and i honestly don't think either of them is the first one i'm sure not. i'm sure Probably that there not. is somebody in the attic somebody you know lurking somewhere who phonetically could work it out taught themselves well, wrote no, it down no, i mean just because the enslaved were not able, or not allowed legally to read and write. Right. Certainly, you can't make the jump that no one did. That's right. Because they were, I mean, Olauda Equiano goes back to the right. 18th century, could read and write and navigate a ship. So that, I mean, you know, there were people who could read and write. And in fact, both of those cookbooks are pretty much post-emancipation in mm-hmm. any case. Um, but I think the first one, would you say, uh, oh, was dated like 1831, I think, or something? Don't know. That would be... Actually... I think that's pretty... No, I'm sorry. 18, 1866. Yeah. 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 
which that's very early, I mean, which very is early. is early considering not early considering other cookbooks, other American cookbooks, but but it's early enough. And the idea, I think, though, is um, is some of the early American cookbooks, like the Virginia Housewife, right. have recipes that are very definitely painted, if you will, with a hue that is very African. That's right. Um, gums, okra. Gums, a West India dish, I believe it is, in the Virginia Housewife, which is just simple boiled okra. So a precursor to the gumbos, right? Or precursor gumbo? to the gumbos, actually using the word that is closer to the Bantu languages for okra, which are ochingombo and kingombo. Hmm. So that whole gomb, gomb. gums would have been something that probably came with it. It's interesting that it's called a West India dish because it probably indicates how the okra or one of the ways the okra may have gotten into the country. But um, but fascinating, absolutely fascinating. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I noticed in, and you brought light to that in this book that it, um, so much of it was considered Southern cooking, but you can see the you know the slave influence. Oh, and, absolutely, and, the African, and, and early African on, influence and early yeah, on. Yeah, it was very interesting, and then we move up quickly to who you know who continued to influence. You know, there's been unfortunately, I think, for the greater. America population, a paucity of, of, I guess, African-American chefs who were allowed and able or, you know, lauded to become superstars? Well, I mean, I think, I think there's several things that have happened. One, um, but I'm going to, but we do have some superstars. Oh, we do. We do. And we have them early. Yes, we do. We have them as early as the 18th century there yeah. again. And by name. Yeah. You know, however... Probably artificial the name maybe Hercules. Hercules, <laughs> I don't think was the gentleman's real real name. That would be George Washington's. George cook Washington was Hercules. had a, an enslaved chef whose name was Hercules, also known as Uncle Harkless, and um, and he cooked for him at the president's house. It wasn't the White House. It was when the president's house, the White house was in, wasn't existing. Well, right, it didn't right. exist. It was in Philadelphia, and um, and Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. had an enslaved chef, uh, James Hemings, who was Sally Hemings' brother. And one of the things that was astonishing to me was to realize that Sally Hemings was actually the half-sister of Jefferson's wife. Oh, now, yeah, That's I didn't realize that. That's a little yeah. <laughs> close for comfort. But, um, you know, so that they had the same father and obviously different mothers. But um, one of the things that happens is Jefferson is so enamored with and so entranced by Hemings' culinary skills that he sends for Hemings when he's in France hmm. as the you know ambassador plenipotentiaire to the court of Louis the Sixteenth, and so um, in 1784, I believe it is, um, Hemings sails to Paris or sails to France and, mm-hmm. and, and then arrives in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, as such, he's trained. He's trained by the caterer who caters for Jefferson's mansion. He is then sent to various sort of stages, internships at various houses, ending up at the houses of the princes of the blood, the Prince de Condé. And he remains there and ultimately leaves in 1789, which anybody who knows French history is the year that sort of resonates with big old clanging bells. He was there. He was there. 
And the man was so complex. I mean, there's another whole set of work to be done. And I believe that there's a lady in Monticello who's doing some of the work on that, but just on Hemings as chef. Well, it's interesting because we attribute so much of of our new world vegetables and findings to Thomas Jefferson himself. How much of his like, uh, his, his um, pleasure out of food was really dictated by Hemings? And how much did... You know, who, who, well, yeah, who, who's zooming who kind yeah, of thing. Right. Um, but I mean, I think one of the things is um, he's certainly aware of it. And he, he, you know, asks for biscuits made by Aunt Sally. And, he, you know, he, he likes he knows what he's eating and he likes it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also has his own pretensions and, and, and his own needs as as a man of a nascent country who is trying to impress, if you will, the world. So he has to do another kind of cooking as well. But I think for his own personal pleasures, he loved the plain, simple Southern food that his uh, enslaved African cooks made for him and, in fact, depended on them up until and including during his White House years because he did live mm-hmm. in the White House. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, we that brings us up to time that of... You know our lifetime, and we had three major influences, and women, I might say, being Edna Lewis and Leah Chase and um, and Sylvia Woods. Well, um, absolutely. And I mean to, and and they didn't. I mean, well, Edna, of course, cooked. You know, she she cooked here in New York City. She cooked even here in she New York City, and she didn't normally cook for. People of color. She didn't normally right. cook for yeah. black folks. She cooked for the Cafe Nicholson. All the, the Cafe Nicholson, yeah. the the uh, intelligentsia, the glitterati, the, yeah. the, the the bohemia in a way. Yeah, yeah almost yeah, more than the celebrity. I mean, it wasn't sort of like the Stork Club. It was a place where the the I mean, so Tennessee Williams and folks of that ilk would would have shown up at Cafe Nicholson, and she cooked for them. And she cooked basic Southern fare. But with her own particular accent, which was perhaps even more contemporary because it was fresh, it was to the degree that she could find it local. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was picky, picky, super picky about ingredients and what went into things and how you know how they tasted, where they came from, you know that they were seasonal, that they you know if it was a wonderful fresh spring pea. It should be a wonderful fresh spring pea. If you couldn't find them, then you serve something else. So it was interesting. And and great advice to follow, no matter what. Exactly. Well, today, in today's food, if we think of what what remains and what are the African-American flavors, I I know, I think I know where you're going to go, but you tell tell our listeners, what what would you say? I mean, I think certainly those three cardinal ingredients that we talked about, the okra, the black-eyed peas, the watermelon, um, I think... Well, on the yams that from well, way back in history, no? Mm, the yams, but yams ain't sweet potatoes. And That's today, right. so African-Americans right. tend to substitute sweet potatoes for a lot of the things that happened with the yams. So, no, I'm not sure I would okay. call a yam on that. But um, equally, um, I think rice, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. but also things that we don't think about, like sesame. That's right. Benny Wafers. Benny Wafers. And we've talked about Jefferson, and he really knew that it was African, tried to transplant it, and ultimately wanted it to, you know, had hopes that it would grow into uh, cooking oil. 
that could be used instead of or grow grow enough to provide cooking oil that could be used instead of the olive oil that was imported. Mm-hmm. So he had dreams of making sesame, a kind of American cooking oil mm-hmm. in that sense, uh, or the source of an American cooking oil. I think that. I think uh, certainly a Southern taste for the bitey. If you go into any Southern restaurant sort of worth its salt or worth its salt and pepper, you will find mm-hmm. along with the salt and pepper a bottle of hot stuff on mm-hmm. the table. Mm-hmm. Tabasco, if there be an upscale and, you know, the long, thin Louisiana red or crystal right. or something like that, if, if they're a little more down home. Um, I think that... Um, Greens, one of the green. Well, now greens. the thing with greens that's interesting is uh, Karen Hess, who I'm sure you knew and mm-hmm. I knew well. I think my f- one of my first encounters with Karen was somehow that she got my phone number and I had written something and she sort of called. And Karen had this most amazing laugh that was sort of half bray, half laugh. <laughs> Jessica, I can't believe you said that. And for our listeners, Karen wrote the Carolina Rice Kitchen. She sure did. And it was all about the rice culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, she said, you said that collard greens are, are black or African. They're not. And they are not. Uh, collard is a corruption of colwort. Colwort is any non-heading cabbage. Mm. And collard greens are essentially Northern European greens. The Africanism, if you will, in the cooking pot of the collard greens, the mustard greens, and any other kinds of greens that we may cook, turnip greens, the pot liquor. Pot liquor. That's why I thought. And we the consumption <laughs> of the pot liquor. So right. the, the drinking that pot liquor that saved more than one life, because of course that's where the vitamins are. And then as you have said many a time you need something to sop up that you pot do liquor. indeed so <laughs> when you sop in that pot liquor then you look to your native american compatriots if you will and you find their corn they gave you corn right? and you, corn you bread, make right? some cornbread oh excellent so you find everything is in that pot you've got the northern european green you've got the african cooking technique and you've got the native american corn for the cornbread to sop mm, it up with. Now throw a little bacon in there. there you go. Sizzle That's it up. The power mm, I can of taste three. it. I'm hungry. Okay. <laughs> That's you- it. Well, Jessica, it is has been a wonderful pleasure. And um, I just I encourage people who really want to learn more about this book, about this about the journey of, of African American um, food to take a look at your book, High on the Hog. And I hope that you'll join us again. We I'd have so much more to. we could We've talk got about. Lots more yeah, to talk yeah. about. Here on It's Been a Taste of the Past, I'm Linda Palaccio, and I'd like to thank our executive producer, Jack Inslee. Join us again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. following is a public service announcement from Heritage Foods USA. 
In late March, Dan, Andrea, Patrick, and the Heritage team are traveling to the coldest reaches of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont to help the Cantor family tap sugar maple trees. Then the maple sap will flow down to the sugar house where it is boiled gently over a wood fire just as it has been for generations. Just a few days later, this grade A amber syrup will be poured into the beautiful glass jugs and sent to you for pancakes, waffles, desserts, glazing hams, or just drinking by the spoonful. There's only a limited supply, so order today. Each one-liter bottle is $45, including delivery. Delivery will be at the end of March, and we will notify you of the exact shipping date. Each shipment will include a CD explaining the whole process. You can also follow us on YouTube while we work and bottle. In the meantime, you can head over to the Heritage Radio Network archives and listen to Linda Palaccio talk about maple syrup on her show, A Taste of the Past, Episode 12. For more information, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join wine impresarios Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco as they dish out on the latest industry news with winemakers and tastemakers on Heritage Radio Network's revamped wine show, Unfiltered. Aaron Fitzpatrick, one of the first hosts on HRN with her program at the root of it, amps up the volume and unfiltered content with co-host Brian DeMarco in this 2011 Redux. True to the original format, Aaron and Brian will keep you abreast of current happenings and break down the news and global events, distilling complex into anecdotal stories that inspire. From media and political events to hailstorms in Argentina, no topic is out of bounds. Tune in every week to hear them chat up the industry's biggest personalities and host on-air tastings with visiting vintners and the country's hottest sommeliers. Whether you're an expert or an enthusiast, Unfiltered demystifies wine and lets you know what it really takes to get a bottle from the vineyard to your neighborhood wine shop. Unfiltered broadcasts live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Omofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat Lafrida Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant. <laughs> 